the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Dan Prop Show. Thanks for joining me. Day two. I hope uh, you're tuning in and helping me spread the word. Uh, of course, the big news. The big news is the uh, strike on Thursday night that killed Iranian Quds Force leader Qasem Soleimani, who, according to uh, the State Department, was responsible over the course of a decade for the deaths of at least 600 U.S. soldiers, as well as tens of thousands of Iraqi soldiers, police, and civilians. This was a bad dude. And President Trump took measured action that was months in the making and also, importantly, was in the context of a belief that preemptive action was demanded because there was a terrorist operation that Soleimani was designing that needed to be prevented. Mike Pompeo, uh, Secretary of State, gave an interview of CNN today saying this. This is a man who inflicted enormous harm not only on American lives, but created uh, terribly destructive activities supporting Lebanese Hezbollah, Hamas, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, uh, all of the bad actors in the Middle right. East. Qasem Soleimani was at the center of all of it. And Pompeo uh, made the point that despite some of the coverage from the D.C. press corps, including on the network that he offered the interview, that uh, this was uh, denounced by the people of Iraq and, frankly, the people of Iran who are revolting in Tehran against the ruling mullahs. In point of fact, and he tweeted this out prior to the interview, there were Iraqis dancing in the streets for freedom, thankful that General uh, Soleimani was no more. We've watched these protests over the last weeks. They weren't burning American flags. They were demanding that Iraqi political leadership uh, stop their kleptocracy, stop their uh, political shenanigans. And Qasem Soleimani was at the center of that. He was driving bad outcomes for the Iraqi people. He was causing many Muslims in the region to be killed. I saw last night there was dancing in the streets in parts of Iraq. We, we have every expectation that people not only in Iraq but in Iran will view the American action mm-hmm. last night as giving them freedom freedom to have the opportunity for success and prosperity for their nations. And while the political leadership may not want that, the people in these nations will demand it. And Catherine Herridge, formerly of Fox News, now at CBS, she had tweeted out uh, Thursday night, uh, Scoop, senior U.S. government official, confirms to CBS News the strike was in response to active threat to U.S. interests in the region, personally overseen by General Soleimani. Official made it clear the U.S. is prepared to take further action if diplomats, soldiers, diplomats, comma, soldiers, are threatened by his replacement. So that was the impetus to it. It wasn't the uh, some knee-jerk reaction. It wasn't reckless. It wasn't incoherent, as some of the left are criticizing President Trump, even as they say, yes, yeah, Soleimani was a bad guy, 
but he should have sought congressional authorization. Yeah, Soleimani was a bad guy, but now he's, uh, as Joe Biden said, thrown a stick of dynamite into a tinderbox. Uh, in point of fact, point of fact, uh, Iraqi troops, I mean, U.S. troops in Iraq, excuse me, are legally there. It's a combat zone. Uh, Iran attacked U.S. soldiers and frankly has re- repeatedly launched attacks. But the most recent attack to which the administration responded with strikes in Iraq and Syria on Shiite militia targets. The most recent Iranian attack that killed an American contractor, wounded four U.S. soldiers. Uh, it is well within the rights of the administration, the executive, to authorize military action uh, in response to that attack. Troops legally there at the pleasure of the Iraqi government. Uh, and that military action necessarily includes a preemptive strike to take out a imminent threat. And that's what Catherine Harris is describing per her conversation with an unnamed uh, U.S. government official, senior U.S. government official. A more context to this as well, too, just to drive home the point that there has been restraint exercised by the Trump administration, including, you'll recall, Trump calling off a strike because he thought that it would potentially endanger too many human lives and that would have not been proportional to Iraqis, to the Iranians bad acts at the time. Mike Esper, Secretary of Defense, after the attack on the embassy in Baghdad had been quelled, but before last night's uh, Thursday night strike had this to say. Well, you have to look at the broader history here. So for, for several months now, and particularly in the last couple, we've had these uh, uh, Iranian-sponsored militia groups, in this case, Qatab Hezbollah, that has been attacking our personnel and our bases. And uh, the attack that resulted in the death of an American and the wounding of four soldiers was actually 31 rockets fired at the base. Um, we saw this uptick over the last uh, two months, uh, nearly a dozen attacks increasing in both volume and the type of weapons used. And so, you know, enough is enough. Uh, this is part of Iran's malign behavior that they've been spreading across the region from Africa all the way through the Middle East into Afghanistan now for 40 years. And it's this type of bad behavior that simply needs to end. And uh, we resume all the we we have all the capabilities inherent in the United States military to either respond to uh, further attacks or to take preemptive action if additional attacks are being prepared. And so that's what they did. And uh, in terms of the strategic interest of America here, the strategic interest is not allowing Iraq to become a proxy state for Iran. And so. The argument that's been lodged by the left, including Andrea Mitchell, who was interviewing Secretary of Defense Esper, is that, well, this weakens the Iraqi regime, does it? Or is it the Iranian influence that's weakening the Iraqi regime and delegitimizing it among the Iraqi people? I think the the party that is weakening the Iraqi government and the Iraqi country is Iran. Uh, They are exerting their influence throughout that country through these uh, Shia militia groups, uh, through uh, politicians that they, uh, they they control in one way, shape, or form. And so that's why I see that uh, you, you see over the past few months, thousands of Iraqis, normal Iraqis, are in the streets uh, protesting uh, both corruption and Iranian influence in their country. In fact, as I recall, they, they torched uh, the consulate in one of their provinces, an Iranian consulate, uh, because they want Iran out of their country. And uh, you'll recall that... Uh the Ayatollah, Ayatollah Khamenei, had responded to a Trump tweet on Twitter 
uh, just a few days ago after the attack on the U.S. embassy in Baghdad. Responding to Trump, the Ayatollah tweeted, that guy has tweeted that we see Iran responsible for the events in Baghdad and we will respond to Iran. First, you can't do anything. Second, if you were logical, which you're not, you'd see that your crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan have made nations hate you. Well, Ayatollah, first, apparently the president can do something, didn't, can't he? Didn't he? And second, uh, made nations hate you? Oh, the, 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 the lead state sponsor of terror the world over, Iran, hates President Trump, hates America. Yeah, we're aware of that, and uh, that's a badge of honor, uh, given the nature of the Iranian Terror state, uh, the Iranian terrorism state. I mean, that's what it is. It's a rogue nation. And President Trump took decisive action, measured, proportional, and in context. Also, uh, a criticism of Trump that's often lodged about his sort of uh, lack of appreciation for uh, lessons learned throughout the annals of American history. Seemed like he learned two pretty good ones before launching on Soleimani, as well as in responding to the attack on the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad, where the attack was quelled, no evacuations, no injuries. He learned the lessons of Benghazi. And with respect to uh, Iran more generally, learned the lessons of Carter and the Desert One operation back in 1979, where Iranians stormed the U.S. Embassy in Tehran and seized more than uh, four dozen Americans who would be held as hostages for more than a year. No repeat of either one of those episodes. And for that, Trump deserves credit. And I, I, the, the left doesn't know what to do with him because, of course, they have to be critical. Everything Orange Man does is bad. So, of course, they have to be critical. They, conceding that Soleimani was a terrorist architect and so the world is a better place without him, just as the world is a better place without Baghdadi, without al-Baghdadi. But uh, I don't like the way you did it. Hmm. Well, they don't like that he did it at all because this is the same party that chose a policy of Neville Chamberlain peace in our time appeasement with these terrorist mullahs, isn't it? The pallets of cash, the glide path to nuclearization. Uh, the hosting of some of those who were leading the attack on the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad uh, in the Oval Office, as President Obama did during his tenure back in 2011. Cutting short the surge in Iraq, as President Obama did in 2011, which opened up the avenue for Iranians to exert their influence in Iraq. Now, Trump learned the lessons, and he's taken a hard line, and he was being tested by Iran, And he's essentially signaled, I think, to the mullahs that he is equal to the task at hand. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show and his eminence, Meet the Press moderator Chuck Todd, was on NBC this week and one of the morning shows with Savannah Guthrie previewing 2020. And uh, here's what he had to say about Trump's reelection prospects. 
it is a strategy that depends on a middle of the electorate overlooking the president's personal character and somehow getting him to reelection. I think it's a very uphill battle for him. The first part of that may be right to a certain extent. I I wonder about the characterization of it being uphill at this point with, uh, as Peggy Noonan writing in the journal, the Democrat primary candidates flailing away, not realizing they're flailing away as they've moved too far left too fast. Victor Davis Hanson also uh, doing a little bit of compare and contrast among his uh, unscientific group of folks that uh, he talked to in 2016. He talked about teaching a class at Hillsdale College for three weeks in September during his vacation from the Hoover Institution out in California. And uh, he noted in 2016 that over the 12 years he would take this uh, 15 to 18 mile bike ride in outside of Hillsdale, Michigan, in the southern Michigan countryside. He wouldn't see a lot of enthusiasm in terms of signage for George W. Bush, John McCain, Mitt Romney. But in 2016, it was very different. Trump signs, both professionally made and hand-painted, had spread it up everywhere, barns, lawns, and sheds. Whatever Trumpism was, writes Victor Davis Hanson, lots of Southern Michiganers seem ready for it. He goes on to talk about, as well, he lives on a farm in uh, Central California, and uh, he has a lot of friends who are uh, Mexican-Americans that he went to school with, grammar school, high school, still stay in touch with. And uh, I thought uh, this was really interesting. One of his friends essentially and saying something that a lot of his friends are saying, which is, I don't like the tweeting. I wish he would make better rhetorical choices. I wish he wouldn't always punch down. Things you've heard before. But uh, by the same token, adding that uh, anything he dishes out, they deserve. Anything Trump dishes out, they, meaning the left, deserves. And this is consistent with the Peggy Noonan argument coming from a different angle, but arriving at the same place. The uh, censoriousness, nastiness of the woke walkers on the left. It just has people saying Trump may be crude, but generally I like his policies. I like where the economy is and I don't like the thuggery of the left. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Selena Zito, WashingtonExaminer.com columnist, New York Post, CNN contributor and the author of the book, The Great Revolt Inside the Populist Coalition, Reshaping American politics, which is now available in a paperback edition uh, with a addendum to uh, uh, to to tackle the 2020 election season. Selena, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Appreciate it. And so what about that sentiment? I mean, it seems very visceral and very simple and perhaps uh, quite prevalent. Anything he dishes out, they on the left deserve. Well, uh, I would add to that. Um, and it's something that I've been reporting about since 2015. It's not just the left. It's also the sort of establishment right. So it's both um, uh, establishment sort of swamp creatures, um, the elite of both parties, uh, that he he doesn't just take aim at Democrats. He's also taken aim at the Republican elite. And that's why he has such an interesting cross-section of voters. Um, and, and though, you know, this nothing has sort of changed since 2016. And if you um, check out my newest story at The Examiner, you know, I talked to uh, Jeff Nober, who's the, Nobers, who is the head of the Building and Trade Association in Western Pennsylvania, 33 counties. Um, he... Um, 
he said, not only am I seeing my members that voted for Trump, these are union men and women, but I'm also seeing ones that didn't vote for him, that either sat it out or voted for Hillary, moving over towards him because of that sort of prickly personality that he has, while they, again, has been repeated um, by men, a lot of pundits, it's not something they like and admire, but they think it is something necessary, and they also love his policy. Uh, and uh, the suggestion, too, is that there's just hasn't been any response uh, or retrenchment by the Democrat Party since 2016. In other words, there's been no lessons learned. There's been no overtures made. There's just been a doubling down. So if if they're yeah. going if they're going to double down, then so are the so-called deplorables. Well, yeah, I mean, and I think there's another nuance that people are missing. And not only has there been no like, not only are they doubling down. But there's been no sense, again, not just from the Democrats, but also the never-Trump elitists who um, don't, you know, I mean, you think about our lives and our jobs and our families. If we make a mistake and we um, suffer a setback, typically what we do is we regroup and reflect on, dear God, what did I get wrong? How did I get to this place? There's been none of that from the elite Democrats or Republicans. They haven't said, oh, my God, they picked him over us. Maybe we should take a look at what we did to alienate them. None of that. Instead, it is just either making fun of the voters, making fun of him, making fun of the policies, and, 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 um, and, and completely missing that they've never corrected the mistakes that they've made to lose these voters. As, as you travel uh, around to places uh, that are not big urban centers and talk to three-dimensional human beings that are very practical in their uh, political decision-making, do you get uh, the sense that this is part of it, too, uh, something Victor Davis Hanson writes in his piece that I was referencing, that the, uh, the unlikeliness of some Trump supporters, particularly now, after his election, after the last three years, it reflects a fed up payback. Their continued support for Trump or their new support for Trump reflects a fed up payback for three years of nonstop efforts to overthrow an elected president. Anger at anti-Trump hysteria, weariness of being lectured. Absolutely. You know, um, I I liken it to uh, Wisconsin governor, uh, former governor Scott Walker's first win in 2010. If you recall, he was almost, immediately recalled because the Democrats were essentially sore losers and they were unwilling to accept it. And they spent so much time, you know, battering him. And so he was forced into a recall. And what happened? He not only won, but he won by more support, something again that uh, the chattering class failed to understand, failed to predict, failed to consider. And why? I spent a lot of time in Madison and Wisconsin talking to voters who didn't vote for Scott Walker in that first term, but thought the constant bashing of Walker since he won and forcing him into a recall uh, was, was not the Democratic way. And so they voted for Walker because they felt that he was treated unfairly. I see a lot of that sentiment among non-Trump supporters 
in 2016 who are moving over to Trump for 2020. Selena, can we hold you over for a second? Because I want to get your take on what you see as a realignment that will extend beyond Trump, whether it's one term or two terms. Uh, Absolutely. Great. Thank you so much. We'll be right back with more Selena Zito on The Dan Fox. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show. We're talking to Selena Zito. She is a columnist for the Washington Examiner, New York Post, contributor to CNN, and the author of the book, The Great Revolt, Inside the Populist Coalition, Reshaping American Politics, which is now available in a new paperback edition with the treatment of the 2020 election cycle. And uh, Selena, in your uh, uh, one of your most, most recent pieces, you argue that uh, basically there's a realignment going on, a political realignment going on in this country, the the blue wall crumbled in 2016, and it's going to stay crumbled. You write, large strata of the population are now not just eager to vote in the next race for president, but eager to vote against the party of their ancestry. This enthusiasm for new alliances is perhaps the greatest indicator of lasting realignment. So this realignment uh, extends beyond Trump, you're arguing. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the um, important things that um, my co-author Brad Todd and I decided that we wanted to understand and we thought it was important to historically understand was, was the election of 2016 a fluke or is this the new conservative populist coalition, the realignment of the Republican Party? And we concluded after you know, interviews and, 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 and a, a lot of polling data that this actually is a realignment. This is the new Republican Party uh, it's, it's more populist in nature, and uh, it is still conservative, but it does have some aspects of the New Deal uh, Democrat uh, voters that they um, that have moved over towards the Republican Party. Uh, the Democratic Party as well has realigned. It has uh, decided that it no longer wants the white working class as part of it, and while uh, they still sort of had, is squeaked by and supported uh, uh, Clinton over Trump in, in um, 2016, there was a 20 to 30 percent drop in support away from the Democrats. I think in 2020, we're going to see the final end of the white working class um, uh, going into the uh, Republican Party. Uh, the, this realignment is... For now, uh, usually our realignments last about 40 years. Uh, you know, I, I don't see this changing for at least a generation, prob- probably more likely to, although with technology it's always sort of diff- difficult to predict because that has changed the sort of the longevity of, of all things in our culture. If this realignment, does this present an opportunity for Republicans to enjoy more support from minority voters? I, I referenced yeah. some of the polling we've seen that Trump's approval numbers among black voters and Latino voters 
is uh, is actually surprisingly high. Now, whether that translates into that percentage of the of that vote, that's a different story. But there seems to be an, an openness that maybe hasn't been present before. Absolutely. And I think that if to to see the best evidence of that is to take a look at the 2018 Senate um, election of Rick Scott. Um, he uh, received um, uh, the highest uh, the highest number ever among Hispanic support um, and re- also received high marks from African-Americans. Uh, and you see that overwhelming approval rating that his um, uh, the the guy who followed him in the governor's seat Rick DeSantis um, is, is is receiving as the current governor of, of Florida uh, these these movements are real they're not imagined and a lot of them have to do with economic prosperity I- not only among Hispanics but also among African-Americans whose approval of the president has spiked. Well, and and so are are we looking at a a reversal of the caricatures of the two parties? The Republican Party is going to be a working uh, low to middle income party, generally speaking, and the Democrat Party is going to be an elite party. It's going to be college educated and those on the upper end of the socioeconomic uh, quintiles. Yes, I, I absolutely agree with that. I think the last time that we saw um, the parties holding on to the stereotypes was in uh, 2008. Um, and, and, and that has just, you know, until 2016, the Democratic Party, I would argue until 2012, and we wrote this in the book, until 2012, the uh, Obama had uh, had kept the New Deal Democratic Party intact, and Mitt Romney had kept the um, sort of Barry Goldwater uh, Republican Party intact. Uh, Obama changed that. He uh, went for the ascending coalition, which is um, minorities, young people, women, and just enough. Uh, white working class. We're going to have to leave it there, Selena, though I do appreciate the book, The Great Revolt Inside the Populist Coalition, Reshaping American Politics. Thanks for having me. Nothing so cold. This is The Dan Proft Show. the Dan Prop Show, and uh, the D.C. Press Corps is doing its best with the uh, help, of course, of uh, Chuck Schumer and uh, other unhinged Democrats to turn any morsel of news into something that is, again, smoking gun. This is consistent with the breaking news, bombshell hysteria of the Press Corps from uh, the first day of Trump's presidency. So the latest uh, smoking gun the latest indication that uh, Mitch McConnell must obey Chuck Schumer's demands for document requests and witnesses to be subpoenaed in a Senate impeachment trial is uh, emails that were uh, unearthed through a FOIA request by the Center for Public Integrity that uh, detail communication between the acting Pentagon comptroller, a woman named Elaine McCusker, 
uh, emails she sent to officials at the White House's Office of Management and Budget. And you'll recall one of the uh, individuals that Democrats want subpoenaed is from the Office of Management and Budget, Management and Budget, including Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney. Uh, But the uh, email McCusker sent to OMB uh, in which she raised concerns about the legality of the hold on the nearly four hundred million dollars in Ukrainian aid. Uh, Pentagon officials frustrations uh, were unequal, however, as an OMB spokesman says, in point of fact, Rachel Semmel, who's a spokeswoman for the OMB, said, Look, there was agreement every step of the way with respect to the military aid between DOD, Department of Defense, and Office of Management and Budget lawyers who were responsible for working out the details of the hold in line with the president's priorities. So there's no uh, so so McCusker's anxieties or frustrations were not necessarily shared by everyone at the Pentagon. And 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 secondarily, uh, despite dire predictions McCusker was making. Uh, warning that some of the aid was at risk of not being spent because of the uh, impending end of the fiscal year. The White House, after lifting the hold on September 11th, the aid did make it to Ukraine before the end of the fiscal year. Chuck Schumer suggesting that, uh, uh, and I'm quoting him, this is a devastating blow to McConnell's push to have a trial without the documents and witnesses we've requested. Well, what's new here? It's new here that the president was involved, directed the hold on release of the aid that had been had been authorized. That's not new. Of course he knew <laughs> that. Is that not what the uh, transcript of the phone call so indicates? Uh, of course he knew. The idea that this is some sort of uh, uh, piece of evidence that would recast the nature of a Senate trial. That's even going to get anybody's attention for that matter. This is just the continued relitigation of things that have been litigated through witnesses that came before House committees, through op-eds, through uh, Jeremiah's from House Democrats and House Republicans. This doesn't move the needle on iota and the desperation on behalf of Democrats, as well as their handmaidens in the media, they're 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 having a debate over unmasking the whistleblower. Yahoo News, the debate over unmasking the whistleblower. What debate? What debate? The whistleblower was un, unmasked effectively weeks ago by the Paul Sperry investigative piece in Real Clear Politics, Real Clear Investigations dot com about him. And then this all of this hand wringing about this is the name that shall not be spoken. Uh, I mean, it's like Frau Blucher and Young Frankenstein. May I present Frau Blucher? You can't say Eric Chiaramella. Uh, remember, you've had uh, Republicans say, oh, you, you want to send a trial? Sure. Our first four witnesses are going to be the whistleblower, going to be uh, Hunter Biden, going to be Joe Biden and going to be Adam Schiff. And perhaps this is why there's uh, histrionics uh, from the left in defense of the whistleblower uh, at fever pitch. Uh, perhaps the exact nature of the collaboration dare I say, collusion between the whistleblower and Adam Schiff's office in the run-up to the whistleblower complaint being filed and then everything that's proceeded from that filing. Perhaps that's what actually is at bar here. I'll tell you what, uh, this also speaks to something else, a good piece 
uh, by uh, Matt Margolis over at PJ Media, talking about draining the swamp. And uh, we've got uh, we've got a lot of swamp draining to do when it comes to top law enforcement and intelligence agencies. I mean, this week we have uh, also the news that uh, Andy McCabe admitted to FBI investigators that he lied. So George Papadopoulos gets indicted and goes to prison for a couple of days lying to the FBI. And uh, Mike, Michael Flynn, General Michael Flynn, is pleading guilty to a lying to the FBI as a part of a plea agreement. Uh, Andy McCabe admitting per, again, a FOIA request that unearthed effectively transcripts of the interviews between FBI investigators and Andy McCabe, the deputy director and acting director for a time of the FBI, that the story he told them initially about leaking information wasn't true. And where is the reckoning for Andy McCabe? Uh, the attorney, the excuse me, the inspector general for the Department of Justice has made a criminal referral on McCabe going back to a report that predates the one in December. And yet uh, we see Andy McCabe when we see him holding forth on CNN as a legal analyst, as a law enforcement analyst. You know, this is this is a real problem. It used to be a problem with the left, too. Used to be a problem with the left uh, that people in power uh, need to be held accountable, uh, need to have to operate under the same laws as the average citizen. Uh, all of the pronouncements from Democrats: the president is above the law, no one's above the law. Well, what about the the people at FBI and CIA? Uh, Margot Cleveland also points out that there was another lie from the Inspector General's report, from the Horowitz report, that the one in December, regarding Christopher Steele that Steele's source work did not involve sources from his time with British intelligence. The DOJ's failure to inform the FISA court that Steele's sources and subsources for his dossier were privately acquired. The impression was that the information Steele gathered together was also used and relied upon by the British government, and that's false as well. False as well. I mean, it seems to me that what you have here is a lot of bluster to misdirect public attention away from accountability at the upper reaches of FBI and CIA, rather than to deliver any form of justice or fairness to President Trump. And it's four o'clock in the morning and all the people have gone away. Just you and your mind to let your drive and tomorrow is another day. This is the Dan Proft Show. I just want to pick up on something I was mentioning uh, when we were talking about uh, the impeachment developments. And by the way, Missouri Senator Roy Blunt, who's part of McConnell's leadership team, is suggesting that the impeachment trial in the Senate should be done in time for the president's State of the Union address, which is scheduled for the first week of February. So there's uh, one suggested timeline. But uh, the idea of what's happening at DOJ and draining, quote unquote, draining the swamp or uh, to make it less uh, political, just accountability, accountability for uh, agencies that have immense political and legal power, Department of Justice, FBI, CIA, NSA. Analysis, I mentioned Matt Margolis's piece in PJ Media. Uh, there was an analysis done of uh, 
the donations, political donations of Department of Justice employees. Now, keep in mind, this represents a fraction of the tens of thousands of Department of Justice employees. But I think it's instructive nonetheless, much like if you looked at uh, a college campus, the professorate and administrators on a college campus, small percentage of them are political donors. But it's instructive, the distribution of political donations. Well, so is the case with DOJ. Uh, Over five years, between 2015 and 2019, so necessarily including the 2016 presidential campaign, total of 1,252 unique donors made 17,000-plus itemized contributions. Uh, In 2016, Hillary Clinton received 2,824 contributions from 414 DOJ employees, totaling nearly 500 grand. Trump, 43 DOJ employees contributed totaling about uh, 15,000. So 414 DOJ employees to Clinton for 500 grand, 43 representing about 3.4% of total contributing employees, 43 for Trump, uh, uh, the collective contributions amounting to just under 15 grand. And again, if you believe that people's belief systems inform their judgment calls, whether they're journalists or prosecutors or bankers or any other profession, then you have to look at that and say, well, that's concerning. That's concerning, much like uh, we talked about yesterday, the uh, diversity statement from the UCLA law professor. You know, when it's uh, uh, 50 and 75 and 100 to 1 of a particular political philosophy or economic philosophy on campus— you know, that tends to be self-reinforcing and it tends to crowd out dissent. Well, one could argue that that sort of distribution Department of Justice could inform the decisions that DOJ employees are making. It's relevant. It's part of the conversation. And it's certainly part of the conversation in the context of the conversation. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show